everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Infinite Worlds podcast. I'm your host, Winston Ward, publisher of Infinite Worlds magazine. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Nick the Tooth. All right, what do you got next? Okay, moving on now. This will be my number three. We're both down to our last three of ten. My number three is Hero Protagonist, who is the hero and protagonist of Neil Stevenson's 1992 dystopian cyberpunk novel, Snow Crash. So unlike most of the other characters on my list, I picked Hero Protagonist mostly because he's so cool. Almost cool to the point of being like tongue-in-cheek cool. If you've never read Snow Crash, Snow Crash kind of comes on the heels after cyberpunk had already been sort of developed. Like William Gibson developed cyberpunk in the 80s. And, you know, in the 80s, there was also a bunch of other cyberpunk stuff, Akira and Blade Runner. And all that stuff is very serious. And all of it takes itself very seriously. But Snow Crash is different. Even though it is in many ways like a detective action story, it also is like silly and fun. Let me try to try my best to set up Snow Crash for you guys if you haven't read it. This is one of the seminal novels of not just cyberpunk, but of science fiction in general. If you haven't read it, definitely put this on a short list. It is one of the most fun books you could possibly read. And surprisingly, it's aged extremely well in a lot of ways, because a lot of the ideas that it introduced are current realities for us now. Okay, so the book takes place in Los Angeles in you know the not-too-distant future, and a dystopian reality is set in where instead of having like a government, everything's owned by corporations. Corporations and people of wealth own everything. There are competing police forces that are owned by corporations. Every town, basically, is its own corporate entity. The mafia owns a chain of pizza restaurants all over the world, and that's how they make most of their money is through pizza delivery. And like I say, it's kind of like a kind of zany in a way, but it's also written as like a gritty detective story. Also, what exists is this other reality that exists parallel to this reality called the metaverse. And right now, we're dealing with the birth of the actual metaverse. That's actually what Meta, the corporation, Facebook's corporation, calls themselves now. They changed their name to Meta and are pitching the metaverse. But that term, the metaverse, was invented by Neil Stevenson for this novel. So this is where it comes from. And it's exactly how you think, when you think of the metaverse now, that is like a customizable avatar that roams this virtual reality and can live in this virtual reality is exactly what is going on in Snow Crash in 1992. A lot of you listeners right now, it's 2023. You can be a full-grown adult now and not be born until after high-speed internet was a thing. In fact, you could be a full-grown adult now and not have been born until after Facebook was a thing. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> there, there are going to be listeners of this podcast, the younger listeners of the podcast. And guys, just so you know, please don't take it as a slight in any way if I just draw a distinction between older and younger listeners, because I'm not trying to slight you at all. There are things I don't understand from generations that came before me. But something that you young listeners won't understand is that the world was a very, 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 very different place before high-speed internet, and especially before social media. I know... Nick the Tooth is going to agree with me on this one. It's mind-boggling, you know? It's mind-boggling to think when he wrote this book 
Between he and William Gibson, it's, it's, it's incredible. I mean, that's why he's touted as, you know, and still regarded as one of the high priests of, you know, modern sci-fi. The fact that he was able to predict what happened with such uncanny accuracy, like a lot of the things that end up on our list are like predictions of the future, you know, and uh, hero protagonist, the character is not, but the book Snow Crash absolutely is. Let me get into the actual character here. Mm-hmm. So hero protagonist, he hands out business cards and it's got like 20 occupations written on this business card. But among the occupations are freelance hacker. He's one of the people that helped set up the metaverse in the first place. Pizza delivery guy for the mafia. And he a self-identified greatest sword fighter in the world. So hero in the metaverse and in real life walks around with a set of katanas that he's willing to duel with at a moment's notice. And Hiro is a half-black, half-Korean guy who's lived all over the place. He's still a pretty young guy in his, like, mid-20s when the novel starts. And it describes all the places he's lived, and it's, like, all over the United States, in various countries in Europe, and various countries in Asia. So the guy is definitely, like, a globe-trotting type of guy, and he's a highly skilled guy. And when I say that this is sort of a parody, the whole walking around with katanas thing and like the ninjas thing, it almost reads like a parody of William Gibson's books in a lot of ways. Because, you know, they had hackers, and they had like ninjas in those books. But the way that Hero represents himself is presented in the book really does kind of read like a tongue-in-cheek parody of, you know, Neuromancer. So Hero gets involved in this wild mystery involving a nearly invincible biker who's roaming around Los Angeles with a nuclear weapon and a conspiracy involving the human language and the story of Babel and all this biblical stuff and how it relates to the metaverse. And it's all centered around this sort of MacGuffin, which is this computer virus, which is both a computer virus and a real virus, I guess, in a way, because it like affects you as a human being too. Like it crashes your actual brain called Snow Crash. And it all somehow relates back to language. And I don't want to tell you exactly what happens because it's a really cool mystery novel. In a lot of ways, it reads like an old school mystery novel. But throughout the book, Hero is represented as being too cool to believe, you know, (laughs) too cool to believe. We were talking about generational stuff, but one of my favorite parts of this book is he ends up partnered with this 15-year-old. He's like 25, and he ends up partnered with this 15-year-old. And to illustrate how quickly generational stuff moves, even though he's this over-the-top badass who's skilled at all of these things, her as a 15-year-old looks at this guy and rolls her eyes and thinks of him as like a corny old guy throughout the entire book. It calls Mm -hmm. him like, thinks of him as like a dork and a nerd. That's definitely the pick on my list that I think of as being the most fun. So that would be my number three. And, you know, we should definitely do an episode about it one of these days. Yeah. I I think one of the cool things about Neil Stevenson, and I think why this book works so well, he's very, very cerebral, right? Very, very cerebral. Yes, absolutely. And why I think this book works so well is because he combined that very, very cerebral approach with a mystery noir, right? And not all his books do that, and not all his books... Like I read one of his books, Seven Eves, and it just dragged on and on. The beginning was great, but then it just, I don't even know if I finished it so much. But this one works because it's just so much of that, like very tight, you know, uh, tropes of the noir. It's like a detective noir novel in the tradition of like Raymond Chandler. Yes. 
Yes. Almost in a like a fill in the blank kind of style. Oh, it's almost like a parody of one of those as well. And very fun though. I think I think that's it. It's like this tone, the tone of this thing is hilarious. Well, that was a good one. My next one is just gonna I my next one's gonna kill it. Okay. That's all I have to all say. Right, all right. Okay, so for my next one, I went to a movie that I dude, I think I watched this. I don't know why. But I think I watched it every time I got on a plane last year Okay, uh, when I was traveling around Europe, which is probably like 10 or 15 times. So I watched this so many times in the last few years. And I only recently got back on it like maybe three, four years ago. And so this is one of the most classic sci-fi movies ever made and definitely uh, one of my favorite of this specific subgenre of sci-fi. Back to the Future, Marty McFly. What a great choice. What a great choice. <laughs> when I was doing my honorable mentions, I actually had Marty McFly written on the list and just forgot to read his name. When I started watching it again, I actually went back because I remembered, I think we talked about it, about how a little bit of trivia, Eric Stoltz right. was cast as the lead and not Michael J. Fox, and they actually started filming. And so I, you can go online and watch those, uh, those tests that, or the, the, the filming that they did with him, and you just realize, man, they needed to get rid of. I can't even imagine making that decision. This is another one that we did an episode about. We've already done this episode, and so this is another one you guys can go back and you should go back and revisit our episode on this one. I always think you should go back and listen to our old episodes. <laughs> Here's the question. Would this character have made your list if he was portrayed by Eric Stoltz? That's a really good question. I, I have to say no. I have to say no because, yeah, <laughs> there's no. I have to say no. I don't. You know, I, someone hit me the other day, and they, they were talking about for the first time ever, they watched the, the movie Pumping Iron which is the bodybuilding movie Oh yeah, in the 70s with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And it, even if you don't like, you don't, I'm not into bodybuilding, but the reality is, is that, he, and what they said was, I cannot believe his charisma. It was insane. Oh, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Right? And so there's just this thing that some people have, man, that, you know, you're, when they're on the screen, you're just like, I can't take my eyes off of them. And Michael J. Fox clearly was just yeah, meant to be sure. a star. Like a, and, 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 not, and, and what's wild about Michael J. Fox, he's a little guy. He's not, you know, you often think, oh, someone's going to be, you know, that's not how charisma works. You don't have to be 6'3 and whatever, you know, Nordic, what, you know. But he just was. Exactly, yeah. Wild, wild. No, so I don't think Eric Stoltz. I love Eric Stoltz. He was amazing in uh, uh, both. Fast Times at Richmond High and in uh, Pulp Fiction. And Pulp Fiction, his character was amazing. But, uh, but no, he couldn't. This, was, this part was made for, for Michael J. Fox. Michael J. Fox. Yeah. Yeah, and it's so weird that they, get, that they went so far into the development of this movie before you know, they realized that. But it's completely true. I don't think anybody in the world would disagree with that. No, and just realize we got a serious problem here. We're getting our dailies back and we're watching this. And director, the director Zemeckis is like, it, this isn't working. It's not working. We've got something great here, you know, but it's not working. And so honorable mentions here in the movie. Again, we talked about it, but Crispin Glover, one of my favorites. He's just such a genius, such a weirdo and genius. And so 
yeah, go back, watch this one, watch it again, listen to our episodes on it. It is, uh, as far as the, the fun, fun genre of sci-fi comedy films, which I put Men in Black up there with, this is, sure. you know, right there. So, yeah. You know, I like this choice a lot for a lot of reasons. Okay, this is another one of those examples that we've had a few on our list now. This is another one of those examples where the source material could have yielded more than one hero to be on this list. Because Doc Brown, for example, could also be on this list. Because mm-hmm. uh, Doc Brown is another iconic and heroic character. You know, he sacrifices himself, I'm doing the air quotes here, to save Marty in the first movie. And especially in like the third movie, he turns into such a badass. And, you know, he's the inventor of the time machine and everything, too. But if I were choosing between these two characters, I also would have picked Marty Mm. as well. Because one, Marty is really the main character of the movie. All right. Hold on. Stop. Stop the presses. Okay. We know what we're going to do next. We're going to, not next, but one of our upcoming episodes, I, I recommend that we do a top 10 mentors list. Oh, that would be really cool. Every, every hero's journey needs a mentor, and he is such an incredible mentor slash hero. He's an incredible. Let's definitely put a pin in that idea. I think that's a good idea. Give me just one second. Oh, yeah, here we go. Robbie Perry, who is one of the, the Instagram followers and fans of the magazine, who sometimes hits me up with some really cool stuff sent me a note about our top 10 villains episode. And one of his ideas was top 10 cult movies. Oh, we got to do that too. That's such a great idea. Oh my God. When I read that, I was like, man, that is a really good idea. There's going to be some slash horror in there. So we're going to do a slash horror sci-fi. There's a lot of crossover, you know, so. Mm -hmm. So Robbie, thanks for that. Shout out. So, okay, yeah, we should definitely do a mentors episode. And obviously Doc Brown would be on the list. But let's also do the cult movie thing too. Anyway, one of the reasons I think Marty makes such a great hero is that he's got such a great underdog quality. Mm. Like you talked about, <laughs> you talked before about like, you know, you could have that charisma without having, you know, being like the six foot four Nordic guy or whatever. And he is that in spades, but not just his appearance, but also the character of Marty McFly is an underdog. You know? Marty is bullied. He comes from a family where his dad is bullied. Even though he's like a cool, hip guy, he could play the guitar and everything, he's not really looked at as being like the coolest guy around. So the fact that he's the hero of the story makes him so identifiable. You know, like you really relate to Marty way more than you would some other Adonis or whatever. You know, he's kind of like the opposite of hero protagonist, who was my last pick. Because uh, yes. hero is like muscular and strong and tall and badass, and carries swords around and is a great hacker and is like smart. He's got like a cool wit and everything. And Marty's like the opposite of that, you know? Marty's kind of a goofball. You know, even though he's got tons of heart and he's a brave guy and doesn't back down from a challenge, you call him a chicken, you know what happens. But he's a lot more bravery than muscle. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good choice. I love it. Watch it again and again. What do you got next? Okay. We're down to number two. Yeah, seriously. We're getting pretty close. Okay. My number two pick is from another movie that we've done an episode on and also a graphic novel. My number two pick is Shotaro Kaneda. That's Kaneda from the epic graphic novel and anime Akira. 
uh, who is the hero of Akira. He made it near the top of my list for a bunch of reasons, but mainly because he might be the most brave dude in all of cinema. Kaneda is not afraid of anything. And as the story progresses, it could not become more clear if that's the case. Okay, let's stop there for a second before I go on to talk more about Kaneda. Definitely go back and listen to our Akira episode. That's one of our most listened to and definitely one of our most fun episodes. In brief, the story of Akira is Tokyo has been destroyed by a nuclear disaster of some kind and then rebuilt. There's Neo-Tokyo now. Kaneda exists as a leader of a biker gang called The Capsules in Neo-Tokyo. And he's just like a punk kid in Neo-Tokyo who runs this biker gang. And, you know, competing with other biker gangs. And basically his life is like getting into brawls with other biker gangs and hitting on girls. Mm -hmm. In Tokyo exists this mental force in certain individuals. And they're being studied by the government. And one of the members of Kaneda's biker gang, his best friend Tetsuo, who's this sort of like scrawny pipsqueaky kid, but still Kaneda's best friend, ends up contracting this mental power and loses control over it. And this bizarre telekinetic power takes over his best friend. But the reason I think Kaneda makes such a great hero is that over the course of the story, he's confronted by the military in great force and shows zero fear of them and utter disdain and tries his best to fight them as many times as he can. The police, same thing, has no fear of the police, just sticks out his tongue at the police, like zero respect for authority at all. And at first, you might think, oh, That's just a kid who's just so cocky. He just has no respect for authority. That's not really bravery. That's just thumbing his nose at authority. And, uh, you know, at the beginning of the story, that's true. But then things start getting supernatural. He's confronted by this overwhelming telekinetic power. And his attitude doesn't change at all in any way. He sees his best friend becoming this gigantic city-destroying monster. And he's he's not unfazed. He gets more and more, like, angry doing everything in his power to save his friend. And the heroism that he exhibits throughout the story is really kind of like, when you think about it just in terms of that as just bravery, it's really kind of mind-boggling. He's so loyal and so brave that I couldn't possibly make a list like this without it. No, he's rad. And in the story, we've gone into depth on Akira. I don't think there's any way to downplay the importance in sci-fi canon of Akira. It's such an incredible freaking story. Yeah, we've been talking about cyberpunk a lot over the course of these episodes. And, you know, my last pick was cyberpunk, and we've done some other cyberpunk stuff throughout this. But really, to me, if you ask me what is the most cyberpunk thing, I probably would say Akira. Even though we talked about this, we talked about this in our episode about Ghost in the Shell, about how really technically Ghost in the Shell is more of a cyberpunk thing because it doesn't really rely on anything fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's technology that we already comprehend. Yeah. And the same thing with Snow Crash and the same thing with a lot of other cyberpunk stuff. But despite that, despite that being a very true and very valid criticism of Akira, and I completely agree with that, still nothing quite feels like cyberpunk to me than Neo Tokyo. Yeah. That's the thing that feels like it the most to yeah. me. And then the music surrounding it, even though that it's like this weird primal, like medieval Japanese chanting style music, even that, even that feels the most cyberpunk. Yeah, so dope. And maybe it's because it entered my own personal pantheon so early in my life, and that might have something to do with it. And guys, you know, listeners, tell me what you think about this. This is something I'm really curious about. Tell me where you place Akira on 
the pantheon of cyberpunk. While you're at it, tell me how you feel about Kaneda, the character, on a hero's list like this. Because I'm, I'm curious about so both. So good. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think so too, obviously, but, you know. <laughs> All right. Number two, that was a really good number two. Hard to do anything without Akira. My number two is, dude, I, honestly, man, I, I think, I don't, I've talked about this before. My intro to sci-fi, I remember I was like in second grade, I think, and first grade. I think I was in first grade. And the teacher brought us to the library for the first time and uh, just was like, go ahead, you can go. Here's the kids sections you guys could find. And, you know, at that point, you know how to read, but you really, I really hadn't, I don't remember going into a library and going, okay, here, my mom had given me a book. I read the book, but now I was like, oh, wow. And I remember sitting down and I grabbed this book and all I remember is that there were these two characters i think they were like robots in a cave okay right and as i'm reading this and it's a age appropriate you know for like second or third graders whatever and they're astronauts i think in this cave as far as i remember it i'm remembering like a past life (laughs) i get it and i just remember they're in this cave on mars or something like that and they're astronauts and dude i swear it was like i took acid i just was so it was the most psychedelic thing it all exploded in my mind and I was like, oh my gosh. And ever since then, I have loved sci-fi. I would do anything if I knew what book that was. It would be so cool. But the next experience that I had with sci-fi was probably the most profound. In I think I was in, I was in fourth grade and our teacher grabbed this book and she was like, okay, I'm going to read this book to you. And we would all gather around her. And she read this book and dude, I just was sitting there like I couldn't even believe what I was hearing. And the book was A Wrinkle in Time. Oh man, yeah. And dude, this is one of my favorite science fiction stories ever. It was written, it was published in 1962. This is what I love about literature, science fiction, uh, is that, you know, this, is, this was written before I was even born. And yet, when I listened to it and later read it, I've read it so many times. I read it to my daughter. It just holds up. It's like, this story is so freaking cool. So it was written in 1962 by Madeline Langle. I wrote, I read almost all the books. None of the books were as good as this one, but she had a series based on these characters. But what happens is her father is a scientist and he vanishes. And so he's doing some kind of experiments. We don't know where he is. And she is, you know, we talk about a lot about character flaws. You know, she's got this trauma where kind of like with with Mulder in X-Files where she's got a family member missing and it's just her father and she's devastated. It's devastated the family. They don't know where he is. It somehow could be uh, uh, associated with the, ex- the physics experiments and all that he was doing. And um, so she's like going, she's like a teenager. She's going through that awkward phase. She doesn't have friends. She's a geek. And um, it starts like on this really dark, stormy night. And um, I think it's Mrs. What's It uh, appears. And is kind of like, this is the mentor and tells her, you know, he basically tells her like Obi-Wan tells Luke, you know, or Morpheus tells Neo, 
is, you know, you got to, it's a call to adventure, you know? Yeah. You, here is your call to adventure on the hero's journey. And so she goes through, it's so psychedelic. It is so psychedelic of a story. Um, and it's almost, it's really this interior world story and so psychedelic that they've tried to film it a few times. They recently did it again and it just, it just, it hasn't, yeah. they haven't done it. They haven't nailed it. The one they made not too long ago, what was it like 2017 or 2018? It was okay. And then there was another one, like maybe 10 years before that or 15 years before that. And it was also okay. It's so funny that they try to make them like so, so often. You know, I think Disney made both movies, if I'm not mistaken. I wouldn't doubt it. I wouldn't doubt it. But they just can't, they haven't been able to nail it. The last one was, I wouldn't even call it a companion piece because I didn't, I couldn't even, I watched it. I was like, God, this is terrible. You know, I just did not get into it. I could not. Yeah. What's wild about the book is it was so, it was so freaking crazy that it was rejected by 26 publishers. Yeah. Because they said it was way too different. Um, it was just because it was that kind of wild. Right. You know, they're like, that'll never fly. That'll never fly. That'll never fly. Meanwhile, it's become one of the most important books in young adult literature that's ever been written. Oh, for sure. I think one of the reasons adaptations don't work is because even though it's a young adult book, I think a lot of times young adult books, okay, I think this is true of a lot of a young adult books, actually, is that the book reads more mature than the adaptations are yes if that yes. makes if that yes. makes sense and i think that's true of this and many others as well one of the reasons i like this choice is because this also fits into that same sort of dynamic where it's almost like the hero with a thousand faces where it's the prototypical good versus evil kind of thing going on yeah you know we talked about this a little bit when we did the fifth element mm -hmm. about how the bad guy is ultimate evil. It's just like the great evil is the mm -hmm. bad guy. In A Wrinkle in Time, the bad guy's like the same thing. I think it's called the great evil. Yeah, I, I think I think that without question, Fifth Element took the bad guy from, I'm not saying that literally, but it is so similar to, to this just all-encompassing evil. And I, I love, like, one of my favorite characters in literature is her little brother, Charles Wallace, who's this little kid on the spectrum who's super genius, but is very young and in the hands of this evil becomes the antagonist, right? In the story. Right. And so it's such a twisted, weird story where they're traveling to different dimensions. And that's kind of like to call up a modern story that we talked about not too long ago as well, but that's kind of like everything everywhere all at once as well. Yeah. How they handle that plot. Yeah. Good guys also being the bad guys or being like corrupted into being the bad guys. <sighs> It's so cool. And so they go on this hero's journey. She goes with her brother, Charles Wallace, essentially with these different mentors to save her father and confront this evil and finally heal the character flaw, you know, within her and heal her family. So it's, man, this is one of the coolest sci-fi books. And it's kind of surprising that we haven't covered it. And so when I was thinking about this, I was like, oh yeah, this is going to be a great one. It's true that Infinite Worlds Magazine and both our conversations tend to veer more towards mature content, at least, you know, for mm. the most part. And this is definitely like youth literature, young adult literature. And, you know, we mostly stay away from that stuff. 
but there's plenty of value in that stuff. Young people have to read something. Yeah, and it's a good it's a good one to keep in mind for when people have kids, readers have kids, and you're like, what do I read to my kid to get them into sci-fi? This is it right here, this book. Absolutely. Right here. It's such a great story. And so there were many in the in the series. The next one was A Wind in the Door. She like Neil Stevenson, she's very cerebral. The next one, Wind in the Door, very, very cerebral. I think the Wind in the Door delved into quantum physics, you know, very early on and was written and I think it was published in 1973. And so, yeah, man, I can't recommend this series enough. Very, very, very cool. Okay. All right. So here we are. Yeah. We are, drum roll, yeah. we are at the number one picks. The question is, we have not had any kind of copying. We haven't touched base with each other. We haven't shared notes at all coming into this. And this is three episodes deep now, three hours. Possibly we've passed three hours worth of recording now. (laughs) So this is a long buildup to this. And the whole time I have suspected that we're going to have the same answer for number one. And I still don't know if that's true, but this character hasn't been mentioned yet. So here goes nothing. My number one pick, which has got to be the most obvious number one pick in all of sci-fi-dom, is Lieutenant Ellen Ripley from Alien and Aliens and all the other Alien sequels. So I don't know if that's who you put. No! But... <laughs> okay, well then I have a pretty good idea who yours is then. Yes. In that case, I was like, it's either going to be who I pick as number one or the Mm -hmm. other one. So great. That's incredible. I'm actually really, really stoked about this. I know. And Ellen Ripley is the just amazing, amazing character. Okay. So uh, that's great because we get to do twice in a row. We came up with two completely different lists. So I'm like, I'm really stoked for that. Okay. So my number one pick, who I consider to be the greatest hero in science fiction history, is Lieutenant Ellen Ripley. For so many reasons. For so many reasons. Okay, quick history of Alien. Alien obviously came out in 1979, one of the seminal science fiction horror films of all time. We've done an episode on this one. Again, one of the best episodes we've done, one of my favorite episodes. If you don't know the plot of Alien, I'll do it really briefly, but obviously you should watch Alien and Aliens. And honestly, you should watch Alien 3 and Alien 4 and Prometheus and all of the rest of them. They're all awesome. I don't care what anybody says. Ellen Ripley, portrayed by Sigourney Weaver, is the warrant officer aboard the Nostromo, which is a salvage ship owned by the Wayland yutani Corporation in the midst of a salvage mission where all the crew is in hypersleep, but they get awakened from hypersleep to find out that they're not at their destination, but they've instead been rerouted because there's a signal on a place called LV246, and they're supposed to investigate it. And what happens next is they go there, and one of their crew members is infected by an alien parasite and subsequently brought on board, and the alien parasite bursts from the crew member's chest and morphs into the alien xenomorph that we're all so familiar with now and begins, you know, murdering everybody. Okay, so why Ellen Ripley is so goddamn awesome. First of all, Ellen Ripley's not from a heroic background. You know, she's a warrant officer aboard a commercial ship. You know, that's her background. She has no military training. She's not looking for a fight. She's not looking for anything. She's just a regular ass lady doing a regular ass blue collar job. And she gets put in this situation. And when she's put in this situation, 
She is the only member of this crew who acts like a professional. One of the most pivotal scenes in the movie is John Hurt's character has this virus, the face hugger attached to his face, and they're trying to bring him back aboard the Nostromo, and she refuses to do it. She said, no, if I bring him back aboard, he can infect other people, and he's not coming aboard this ship. But her decision is overridden by other members of the crew, and the alien ends up aboard the ship anyway. Then, as predicted, the thing starts killing everybody, and she is the only one of the whole crew that actually keeps a level head throughout the whole thing. And because of that, she ends up surviving the whole thing. Then she ends up in the distant future. She goes into hypersleep in an escape pod and ends up 50 years later and dragged back into the whole situation again, by the way, in the Nutani Corporation. And once again, even when she's put in the company of Marines and representatives of the corporation, she still ends up being the only one who can maintain her cool and think rationally about the situation. It ends up surviving it again for the same reasons. I once heard Alien described this way, and I think this is kind of a popular internet meme, but it's the story of a crew of a ship that doesn't listen to a woman and everybody dies because of it. And that really is the case. And the way Ellen Ripley, over the course of the story, a character with no military training, with no background in anything like this, continuously finds herself being the hero of these stories is really impressive. Ellen is really the first woman action hero of any character, really. I mean, that's not wholly true. I mean, there are women action characters in literature going back hundreds and thousands of years. That is totally true. But in film, it really is the case that Ellen Ripley is pretty much the model for the action heroine, so to speak. Through the course of the series, she does just only cool stuff. At no point do you ever look at something that Ellen Ripley is doing and go, oh, what the hell? What are you doing, Ripley? Not once. Not once. And all of that happens without it being unrealistic. She doesn't do anything superhuman. She doesn't do anything that would make you go, how did she do that? She just does what a brave, rational person put in these horrible situations would do. And she does it because she has to. And that's why she ends up being my number one pick. Just endlessly brave, even though she's terrified the whole time. Yeah. She still does what has to be done because she's a pragmatist. What struck me anytime I go back and watch it is in my memory, I always remember this being very much a monster in a box horror movie. But the first like 15, 20 minutes, the first act of this movie is so sci-fi and so just it, just the world building that takes place while they're on this mission. and Absolutely. Oh, God, it's fucking so cool. They nail it. The world building is bar none. And so I don't remember the world building until I rewatch it. When I rewatch it, I'm like, oh, my God, this movie is so freaking good. And to think that we're still watching, like, I love Prometheus, you know? I love that movie. Oh, yeah. And so it's fantastic. I, it's a I, super underrated movie. Oh God, it's so fucking cool. You know, it had its flaws, but to think that we're still just repeating and going back to this world that was created with this movie. And yeah, she was amazing. Incredible. Are they doing any new alien movies with her? Is there yes. anything on? No, not with her. No. Okay. No, she's I think retired from the alien universe as far as I know. They do have another alien movie in development. 
Alien Romulus, and it's directed by Fide Alvarez. I've never heard the person's name written, but he's the guy who directed the reboot of The Evil Dead that came out maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Ah. I'm a little dubious because even though I really like that Evil Dead reboot, I think it's one of the best reboots ever. And I'm a big Evil Dead fan. Even though I really like that reboot, most of his movies have been not that great. Yeah. So I'm a little I'm a little dubious, but we'll see. I never judge a movie until I see it, ever. Yeah. So we'll see. And this is one of those franchises where you're like, well, I at least need to give it a shot, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's my number one. All that's left is Tooth's number one now. All right. Drum roll for me. My number one is an obvious pick. It's clearly mm-hmm. the most obvious for me. And that is Dune. I am going with Dune. I have to go with Maudib, with Paul Atreides. It's my favorite book of all books, of all literature. And he's my favorite hero. And the level up with the character is always my favorite. And for him, going through this rite of passage, this insane, death-defying, like, psychedelic experience where he takes what now they call the hero's dose and, you know, of the spice. And it, it's, man, it's just so rad. I love the arc of his character. I think Frank Herbert, from what I read, he started with, I want to create a character who goes through this arc, who becomes so powerful that he becomes evil. Right. Right. In a, in a way. The reason he didn't end up making my list, and of course, if you just take the novel Dune on its own, he's a hero. No question. Yeah. You know, no question. He definitely is an example of one of those mm-hmm. die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Yes, exactly. 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 No doubt. Frank Herbert knew that. He knew where he was going with it. What I loved about this arc of his character is that level up. You know, we talked about how you have the level up of Neo, which, by the way, Neo. <laughs> It was almost my number one. I mean, I could, I could see what, that. I could see that. <laughs> but I, I still will go with Paul Atreides over Neo because I'm much more into that psychedelic realm. And so totally, totally. This, this was this like fantastical melding, like we talked about, the melding of the sci-fi with the fantastical that occurred in Akira. This was actually set the tone. This was done in Dune back so, 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 so long ago. And so, you know, where Neo went through and his leveling up was purely cyberpunk with the neural implants. Right. Paul did it by navigating that psychedelic space. And so it's really uh, it's just my favorite. And again, given the arc of his character and how he becomes the most destructive force in the entire universe, this omniscient like God, it's uh, no, it's it's way too cool. So that's why I went with uh, Paul Atreides as number one. I know pretty predictable for me to choose that, but I couldn't I couldn't balk. I had to look straight into it. <laughs> Same thing with my pick too. You know, and I think Paul's an excellent choice. It's an awesome choice, especially if you just take Dune by itself without the continuation of the saga, because his arc is incredible. And his character is so badass. He's likable, too, because he starts off, okay, even though he's the son of a duke and everything like that, he's still a relatable character. Yeah. You know, because he's scared, he's insecure, he doesn't know what's going on, and he's got all of these forces pressing against him. He's got his dad expectation and the dukedom. He's got the Bene Gesserit and their tests and his mother's expectations of him, his trainers 
Gurney's expectations of him. Duncan Idaho and uh. Duncan's expectations of him. Then they go to this other planet and then there's all of these other expectations cast out on him too as the Quitsats Hatterack. So in a way, he's extremely relatable despite how far out and how removed from our normal society that that story is and he is. Let's not forget no Dune no Paul Atreides, no Star Wars, no Luke Skywalker. Oh, yeah. In fact, Frank Herbert was not happy with Star Wars. <laughs> you know what I mean? I can, I can understand. <laughs> right? We have the spice mines in Star Wars. Where, where do you think that came from? Mm-hmm. Lucas was just like, I'm going to borrow totally. this. I'm going to borrow that. I'm going to borrow this. He's a big borrower. Is Lucas. <laughs> What's interesting is you have this arc where, you know, the hero, you brought it up. I mean, it's such a great quote that, you know, if the hero lives long enough, he'll become the villain. But there's this other arc where, you know, if the hero also can become the mentor. Right. And that's kind of like what happens with Luke, you know, where he becomes the mentor, but then becomes a bad mentor in the later right. J.J. Abrams and all that. So, but yeah, yeah. Very, very, very cool. Okay. Uh, so it's so funny that we made these, to- these whole top 10 lists and we excluded so many worthy candidates, you know, like Luke Skywalker, Neo. I picked Ellen Ripley, but Sarah Connor is another excellent sci-fi heroine that could have easily been on our list. I was going to ask you, like, how did you choose between Ripley and Sarah Connor, right? Because they're both so strong yeah. female heroes, you know? There are so many other tons and tons and tons of other heroes that could have made it on our list. So guys and gals and anybody else, if you listen to this list and you aren't satisfied with it because your favorites didn't make it on this list. I understand. I completely understand. And the top 10 list is not meant to be like an official top 10 list. It's not meant to say that these characters are empirically better than other characters or more important or anything like that. All this is, is just a list more or less of our favorites and how they influenced us and, you know, who we think of as our top 10s. And also fledged a little bit because we're trying to like avoid running into each other and because we wanted to you know include some more obscure dark horse stuff for the sake of getting you folks to read some books you haven't read and see some movies you haven't seen you know that's important to both of us absolutely absolutely all right well that was it man that is our top 10 list that was a big one yeah a lot of recording there (laughs) <laughs> it was worthy because you know heroes are heroes and that's why we uh yeah. that's why we tune in right yeah, absolutely well, all right man well it was a lot of fun and i'll catch you on the flip side with another podcast recording in the very near future let's do it all right bro late guys if you're enjoying the infinite worlds podcast you could definitely check out more infinite worlds related stuff by visiting our website infiniteworldsmagazine.com There you can subscribe to Infinite Worlds magazine. It's a full-color, ad-free science fiction magazine featuring stories, comics, and illustrations from creators all over the world. You can also sign up to our mailing list. You can follow us on Instagram at Infinite Worlds Magazine or on Twitter at IWSciFiMag. Also, you can find Nick the Tooth on Instagram at Nick the Tooth and follow his wild escapades. Theme song was written by Christopher Whitaker and our podcast is produced by Andrew Alonzo. Thank you.